Well, friends, welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad you're here with us. As you can tell, today's a little bit different. I'm not in the Sanctuary Hair Church. I'm in my home. I've been home this week with COVID, and so I wanted to bring this message, and so this is how we're going to do this today. Um, my hope right now is that really my voice is going to hold up for about 30 minutes or so as we walk through this uh, passage today, this message today. Um, today is part uh, seven of our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're spending nine weeks looking at a very, very famous passage, Galatians 5, 22, and 23. It goes like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hopefully you're starting to memorize that by now. The plan each week is to really take one of these words and just dive deep and explore how is this the fruit of the Spirit. And so today we're on the seventh week, and so we're going to look at the seventh word, and that seventh word is faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. To say that differently, the natural outgrowth of a follower of Jesus, someone who lives in Christ and walks in Him, someone who whose life is lived in step with the Spirit, is that they will live a life of faithfulness. And of course, that's true because God is faithful. I mean, faithfulness of God is one of the most key words we read throughout the Bible to describe God's character, his nature, his attributes, what he's like. So I think about some some great verses, like uh, Psalm 25, verse 10 comes to mind. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. I just love that so much. Toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. Psalm 23, verse 5 says this, He loves righteousness and justice. The Lord's faithful love fills the whole earth. That's so great. Isaiah 55, verse three, great great passage here. The Lord says, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. This is so great now. So the fruit of the spirit is, is faithfulness because God is faithful. It's that simple. So it makes sense that when you walk in Christ, as you live in the spirit, as you take up your cross and follow after him, as you practice the the life of a disciple, that you would uh, live a faithful life. Now, as we say that, the fruit of the spirit is faithfulness. We should also take some time to define that because because what does that mean? And we need to remember that we're reading um, an an English translation of something that was originally written in Greek. And so there's other ways to translate this this word um, from faithfulness. We're reading from the NIV, which is our normal translation that we read at our church. But um, other translations translate this word differently. So the King James Version, for instance, translates this word as fidelity. Other translations use the word reliability. Um, Some translations say being faithful. So it's not faithfulness, it's being faithful. Uh, The message translates this as loyal commitments. The Greek word that's actually there that we're translating this from is the Greek word pistis, which is a really important word in the Bible. And what pistis means in Greek, what we really normally translate this as, is just simply as faith. That's a more accurate, more literal way to say this, would be to say that the fruit of the Spirit is faith. But what does that mean? I mean, how, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? The fruit of the Spirit would, would, be, would be faith. Because for a lot of us, when we think about faith, faith is what happens in our, in our heads. It's what we believe. It's what we think. It's our theology. It's our doctrine. It's our, it's our dogma. And so sometimes we talk about like a person of faith. And what we mean by that is, is a person um, who holds religious convictions, 
whether that's a Christian or a, a, a Jew or a Muslim or a number of, of religions, we might we might call a person of faith someone who has a certain religious perspective. And what we mean by that, of course, is, is what they think. It's it's what's in their head. Um, so faith is about religious doctrine. It's about theology and, and, and belief, whatever that might be. But that wouldn't make any sense to say that the fruit of the Spirit is religious doctrine. So we translate this word um, not just to say faith, but rather the, the application of faith. That's what it means to be faithful, is the application of faith. It's, it's, um, it's lived faith. That's what we're really talking about here. So the fruit of the Spirit is lived faith. It's applied faith. It's, it's faith in action because biblical faith is action-oriented. Biblical faith is action-oriented. It's not just about doctrine and theology and dogma. It's much more about what do you do with what you say you believe. That's really what biblical faith is about. So how do you live what it is that you say you believe? Let me show you this in action. Let's go to a great teaching on biblical faith. One of the most famous passages in the Bible about faith is James chapter 2. Um, and here's what James writes. This is so challenging and so astute and so insightful. Um, James writes this. We're going to start in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? In other words, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone has the right beliefs but doesn't do anything because of that? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone has doctrine but it doesn't impact their life, how they actually live? James says, can such faith save them? Because, is that even faith? Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister, notice we're specifically talking about those who are um, in the church, our, our community, our fellowship of one another. So suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily, um, bread, daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Or sometimes this translated as what use is that kind of faith? Now, James is addressing something here that has become a pretty common critique um, of the church from those on the outside. So it's become, it's become very common, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this from, from those on the outside, to criticize Christians for not addressing uh, needs that are happening in the world with action. And so you might hear people uh, outside the church say something like, you know, what good are your thoughts and prayers, you know, when X, Y, or Z is happening in the world? And this is a, a criticism we, that we hear from those outside the church to say that sometimes we Christians, we sometimes hide behind faith language instead of actually helping people. Um, for James, the faith language was peace be with you. For us, sometimes the faith language is my thoughts and prayers are with you. I'm praying for you. But either way, we're hiding behind faith language um, in order to not actually help people. And so there's this criticism in the world that's, that's taking place that thoughts and prayers are, are useless. Now, to be fair, I, I think that that criticism is based on a tremendous amount of cynicism that um, ignores a ton of reality about uh, the impact of churches on society. I read recently that uh, something like 40 to 50% of all dollars that are spent in the United States on social services come from faith-based organizations. And when you think about that, that is a massive, massive impact that wouldn't be happening without faith-based organizations. Or I just think about our own history of, as Americans and um, the role that Christians have played in leading social change 
um, in, 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 our, in our nation. And, and, and yes, people have historically used the Bible to justify all kinds of, of evil things too. I'm not, I'm not going to whitewash that history, but, but sometimes in our modern historical tellings, we forget the role that Christians played as leaders in things like the abolition movement, the civil rights movement, women's suffrage, temperance. These were all um, Christian movements that spurred incredibly good things in American society. So I, I think this is criticism that all Christians offer as thoughts and prayers is, is really cynical and not actually grounded in reality. And then at the same time, I also think that that criticism is sometimes a little bit fair. Sometimes it's fair. I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of people who, um, who believe in Jesus, but you wouldn't know it unless they told you that. <laughs> like there are, there are lots and lots of churches who seem like their, their whole mission is just to make more money. Or there are lots of Christians who, who have uh, made faith about what they believe, what they think. And so it's not uncommon to hear someone talk about how they prayed like a sinner's prayer, you know, when they were a kid and they had some sort of prayer about how Jesus would forgive them of their sins. And they prayed that prayer. And now it's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Right. I prayed the prayer, even though my life doesn't look anything like I have faith in Jesus, but I prayed the prayer one. So I'm good. So I, I mean, I prayed the prayer, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't actually go to church anymore. <laughs> It's like, I prayed the prayer, right? But I'm, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend or I prayed the prayer, but I'm, you know, I don't like give money to the ministries of the church or those ministries that help the poor, right? I prayed the prayer, but there's like all kinds of conflict in my life. There's all kinds of people who don't talk to me anymore. And so James would say, okay, okay. So you prayed a prayer to receive Jesus as your savior. But what good is that prayer if it doesn't change your life? Because faith is not just something you think, it's how you actually live. James goes on, verse 17, he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, listen to this next line, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Verse 19, you believe, that is in your head, you believe that there is one God, well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that's great. So do the demons. You believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. That is wonderful. So do the demons. Like the question is not what do you believe? The question is what difference is that making in your life? So verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Well, here come two examples. And these two examples are very different from one another. Verse 21, was not our ancestor, I'm sorry, not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Do you remember the story from Genesis? It's uh, Genesis 15. God makes a covenant with Abraham and it tells him that he'll have a son even in his old age. And Abraham, the Bible says, believed God and, and God credited to that to him as, as righteousness, as right living. Um, so this faith of believing God, taking God at his word was credited as right living. Now, this belief later translated into action because years later, the son of the promise, Isaac, is born. And uh, when Isaac is a, is a young teenager, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It's a very sad, confusing, troubling story in Genesis, but because this is not the kind of thing God does, God never calls his people to sacrifice their children. That's what the pagan gods did. But Abraham obeys and he takes his son on a three-day trip. They gather the firewood uh, for the sacrifice. And as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, the Lord intervenes and stops him and he gives him a, a ram, a lamb that is to, to, uh, 
sacrifice instead. And so this child of promise, Abraham is willing to give back to the Lord. Um, it's, a, it's a sad, strange, confusing story that also points us to Jesus. There's so many details there that point us to Jesus. I mean, it's a three-day trip. He places his son on wood. There's a lamb that intervenes that is, uh, that is actually sacrificed. There's so many things that are pointed to Jesus. But, but, but Abraham's faith was not just to receive the promise, but it was to follow God no matter what happened. So verse 22, it keeps going here. You see that his, that's Abraham's faith, and Abraham's actions were working together. And his faith was made complete. The Greek word there is teleos. could also be translated as perfect by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15. And he was called, I love this line, God's friend. He was called God's friend. So you see it, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone, because what they do and how they live is demonstrating their faith. Verse 25, here's the second example. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Do you remember the story of Rahab? This is from Joshua chapter two. As the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, they've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness after being slaves in Egypt. Moses just died. Joshua is the new leader. Um, he sent some spies to, to, to spy out the, the land that they're going to go into the promised land. And they go to Jericho, the city, and the spies infiltrate the city, but their cover is blown, and so they have, they have to hide somewhere. And Rahab, the, the pagan prostitute, becomes an example of faith as she hides the spies. And she confesses along the way her faith in the Lord, and her confession is tied to this action of hiding the spies. And, and in the end, she's told that she'll be protected when the Israelites come and their army. Um, so she's given instructions to, to hang a scarlet cord from her window, which of course is scarlet is the color of blood. So she is saved by hiding under the blood. I mean, pointing to Jesus. Now, later, Rahab seems to have married an Israelite because she'll become the great, great grandmother of King David. And thus, an ancestor to Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter one, she's of three, one of three women who's named as an ancestor of Jesus. But her faith, just like Abraham, it wasn't just a confession. It wasn't just to say that I, I think this or I believe this. It was to put her own life on the line for the sake of the Israelites. And so James uses Abraham and now Rahab, very different, uh, very different uh, examples here, a man and a woman, uh, a person with power, a person with no power, who both put their faith in action and then James sums all this up with this line, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And two times now we've read that line. Faith without deeds is dead. Now, uh, James chapter 2 is creates some controversy. There are people who get, think this is controversial because it's hard sometimes to read Paul um, in some of his writing where he says things like Ephesians 2, um, it's by grace through faith that we are saved. And so people are like, well, which one is it? Is it faith alone that we're saved as Paul teaches and as the Protestant Reformation really emphasize? Or is it by works, which, which James seems to say? Like, which one is it? Is it faith or is it works? And I hear this controversy and my answer is usually yes. <laughs> there are people who see controversy here, but I don't see any controversy because when I look at the Bible, I don't ever see faith as contradictory to my deeds. In fact, I would say that the relationship between faith and our deeds is that our deeds show our faith, which I think is exactly what James is saying here. 
Now you, you might hear that and think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's self-evident, pretty, pretty straightforward. Our, our, our deeds show our faith. Why does it even be said? But, but just think about what that means for just a second, that our deeds show our faith, because that can be a pretty challenging insight. I mean, I think about it like this. Something I believe is that everyone has faith. It may not be Christian faith, but everyone has a belief system. It may be Christian. It may be another religion. It may be secular. It may be self-centered. It may be focused on goals or ambitions or career or money or a number of things. But that belief system is not just a theory about how you live your life. That belief system is how you actually live your life. Sometimes we might call our belief system a worldview or some other people might call it a mental map. But our belief system, it's, it's, like, it's like our operating system on our phones, right? The operating system, the OS is what makes our phones functional. And so the operating system holds all our apps together and it makes things work on our phones and your phone wouldn't work without an OS. And that's, that's how our belief system works, that there are these different parts of our lives that find this coherency in our belief system. And so our belief system is really the, the critical uh, answer to how we make decisions, how we treat people, how we decide what's important or not important, what we give attention to, what raises in our priorities, how we do we spend our money, how do we spend our time, how do we, how do we um, go about difficult, uh, complex questions of the world. Like This is where our deeds come from. They, they come from what it is we actually believe because our deeds... Our deeds reveal what we actually believe. Not what we say we believe. Our deeds reveal what we actually believe. I mean, let that sit with you for just a second. Our deeds reveal what we actually believe. So let's tease this out for just a second. I may say that I believe a certain doctrine. Like, I don't know, the Bible is God's inspired word. Like, I believe that. That's something I believe. I, ho- I hope you believe that too. But it's not enough just to say, I believe that doctrine because we really need to go a step deeper and say, okay, so do my deeds say that I actually believe that doctrine? Or is that just something I think in my head? Because what do my deeds say about my life? So if I say, I, I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Okay. So do I actually read the Bible? Do I listen to it? Do I apply it to my life? Am I trying to live into it? When the Bible says things that challenge the way that I live, do I live in obedience to that? So for instance, when the Bible says things like, do not worry about your life, or the many, many, many times the Bible says, do not fear, do I, do I try to live into that? Or instead, do I just allow fear, anxiety, and stress to run amok in my life? Or when the Bible says things like, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Do I live as if that's true? Do I live a life of generosity, biblical obedience to tithing? Or do I hoard? When the Bible says things like forgiving my enemies and I need to bless those who persecute me, do I live as if that's true? Do I, do I love and forgive those who have hurt me or do I hold on to resentment? It's not enough to say that I believe certain doctrine when really the question is, do I live as if that's true? Or I think about other doctrine. I think about things like, okay, you know, I believe, I say I believe things like, I don't know, for God so loves the world that he 
gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life, right? That's John 3, 16. I, I, I believe that. I hope you believe that too. But here's the deeper question. It's not so much do I believe that's true, but do I live as if that's true? Do I live as if God's love is for everyone? Do I live as if, as if, as if I'm in, to call people, invite people to come and experience this, this life that is lived in Christ? Do I, do I treat my enemies with God's love, that God's love is for everyone? Do I seek to share this with my neighbors and those who don't know? Do I desire to, to play my part in bringing this message to the nations? Like it's one thing to say that I believe something. It's another thing entirely to live as if that's true. So I think everyone has a belief system. Everyone has faith. It may not be Christian faith, but everyone has faith. It may be faith in secularism. So I end up living as if there is no God who actually cares about me. Or it might be that I have faith in the dollar. And so I end up living as if money is the most important thing. Or it might be that I have faith in my reputation. And so I work really hard and I lose sleep. and I really care about what people think about me. Or it might be that I have faith in my political party. So I end up seeing everything with a partisan lens. It might be faith in my own experience, which is largely what postmodernism is. And so I end up living my truth and trying to be true to myself and living my authentic self. My belief system, you see, it really matters. And it shows up in how I live. It shows up in my deeds. So the question to ask ourselves is not so much, what do I believe? But it's really to say, if I look at my deeds, my actual life, how I make decisions, how I treat difficult people, how I interact with the poor, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, how I respond when I'm hurt and wounded by others, how do I interact with the church, how do I pursue God in my life? When I think about these deep questions about how I actually live my life, the question is not what do I say I believe, but what do my deeds say about what I actually believe? Because those are the kinds of questions that reveal our belief system, our true faith. And I would guess that for a lot of us, there's probably a disconnect between what we say we believe and then how we actually live. And how we, I don't know, forgive, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we parent, how we function in our marriage, if we're single, how we date, how do we deal with stress and, and, and worry? Like there's a disconnect, there's a gap. And so James challenges us that Christian faith without deeds, Christian faith without action, Christian faith not applied is dead. Now, thankfully though, Jesus raises the dead and he can raise us too. He can revive our faith. He can change our life. So Paul says, the fruit of the spirit is faith, it's faithfulness, it's applied faith, it's lived faith. The fruit of the Spirit is a life lived with the confession that Jesus is Lord. And it's not just a confession I make with my mouth, it's a confession where my life begins to live that out. So as you pursue God, as you practice confession and repentance, as you lay down your life and deny yourself and pick up your cross, as you're crucified with Christ, as you practice the life of a disciple, as you learn to study and apply and submit to the Bible, don't be surprised 
when the Lordship of Jesus begins to invade every single part of your life. Don't be surprised when you begin to surrender the parts of your life that you used to hold on to tightly and you seek to control. Don't be surprised when you begin to care for those who are lost and hurting and suffering. Don't be surprised when you begin to have more sympathy and compassion for our enemies and those who have hurt us, those who are lonely and those who are struggling. After all, this is how Jesus lived. And when our faith is in him, we are going to reflect him because faith without deeds is dead. And ultimately, our faith is going to reflect the life and the person and the Lordship of Jesus. This is the fruit of the Spirit that we call faith. Faithfulness, applied faith, lived faith. Let's pray. And so, Father, today, um, as we walk through this passage, we, we just want to begin with a, a moment of confession. That for many of us, there is a gap, a disconnect between some of what we say we believe and how we actually live. There are places in our life that we know are quite clearly lived in opposition of you. Maybe places where we're fostering worry, places where we're seeking to control, places that um, we can't surrender, places where we are dealing with difficult people, we hold on to resentment. But as we walk in you and live in you and pursue you and keep in step with the Spirit, we know that our faith is going to begin to reflect you more and more and more. This is the process and the lifestyle of sanctification. So our lives are lived in greater and greater conformity to you. So Father, would you give us eyes to see, courage to face the reality that there are places in our life that we need to adjust, we need to confess, that we need to repent, that we need to pay attention to, that we need to submit to you, that our lives might clearly reflect the life of Jesus. For anyone who's with us today and doesn't know the the mercy, the grace, the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. We just want to offer a simple prayer, a prayer that begins a life of faith, but it's just the beginning. It's a simple prayer of faith. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin? Would you lead my life? And we know that that prayer is not the end of faith, but it's just the beginning as we begin this process of following you, of serving you, of denying ourselves, to live with you as the Lord of all things in our life. It is in your name that we pray today. So we say, Amen.